Hi, Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the love theorist. The topic today that I'd want to share with you is about how love is required for matters of justice to be important to us. This is some perhaps self-evident, but but maybe not. And for me, anything to do with violence against people, animals, or the environment, Mother Nature, is a matter of justice. It's a matter of injustice to the impacted parties. Um, and when we are not engaged or connected with the losses and harm happening uh, to people in justice matters, then things can go from bad to worse and there is no witnessing, there is no one caring and there is no one trying to address those justice issues. So for justice to matter, we need to bring love to to bear in those situations. Um, and sometimes those situations, often those situations, are not directly related to us, but we can be implicated in matters of injustice toward other other beings and the landscape, for example, through what we consume. So this is why I'm really interested in justice, uh, because I think to be loving on the planet, then our attention at some point, in some ways, needs to be uh, with regard to injustices that are occurring. So that love is required for justice to matter is the theme. It's a really big statement to make. And I thought the best way to go about it would be to unpack what I mean by the idea of eco-justice or ecological justice. It's kind of an umbrella term that for me is really important in building a theory of love because I think it's really important for justice to, to not only be about people and people's rights and well-being, uh, but also justice needs to be in relation to other species and humans and the landscape um, in all its diversity and isness. Um, and so, so this concept of ecological justice seeks to be uh, more encompassing than the usual understanding of justice, which is nearly always uh, in relation to people. And having said that, it is by no means a finished situation of justice between all people. And it's extremely perplexing and troubling to see the types of violence and injustices perpetuated against individuals, minority groups, whole countries. Um, so justice, I think, is a really important lens uh, for helping us to know why love matters in the world. I would say, therefore, that where there is violence or lovelessness, it is a matter of a justice issue happening. Um, and my baseline ethical positioning is that all beings and Mother Nature in all her diversity has a right to peaceful coexistence and a right not to be intruded upon or exploited. Now, I'm speaking from an ethical position here, and I'm sure all of us and myself included, um, when I, when you hear me say that, think, oh my gosh, am I really going to say that and try and hold with that point of view? And yes, I am. Um, and, and as I've said in a recent newsletter, every statement I make, I could qualify it. But if I keep qualifying everything I'm trying to say, then it 
we just go around in circles. So this is an ethical positioning that I'm holding. It it comes across as a purest ethical positioning. But what we know, living in the world, we are all to some extent compromised ethically. Um, this is not to take away from what responsibilities we can enact to make a difference where we can. Okay, so eco-justice or ecological justice then is a term that I'm using for three types of interlinked justice, namely social justice relating to people, usually to minority or disadvantaged social groups, um, species justice relating to other other animals other than human beings and i absolutely acknowledge that human beings are a species are animals we are animals um, and also environmental justice um, and i acknowledge that human beings are integrally embedded in and dependent on mother nature not separate from it and we are also therefore interrelated and not separate from other species and their well-being as well so what i'm doing in this podcast is is a little bit kind of um intense in the sense of really trying to get hold of these concepts and say a couple of things about them um and i do stop short of going into expansive examples of injustice in each of these three types of understanding of justice uh, there will be scope for doing that at other times um, and so i hope you bear with me i do give a couple of examples but maybe you could do more i'll see how we go um, okay so in in describing these types of justice and their interlinks i want to put the case for more inclusive understanding of justice this is important to ensure a theory of love is encompassing of all of life and all of the complex challenges to sustaining life, peace and well-being on the planet. The first concept we'll look at in a little bit of depth is social justice. Now, as a true blue social worker for many years, uh, uh, I'm absolutely aware <laughs> that social justice is the main principle or value in the social work profession internationally and nationally here in Australia. Um, it is seen to be the defining characteristic, perhaps, of what social work is about. Um, it is interesting to me, therefore, that definitions of social justice tend to be more about what it looks like, the doing of it, uh, and tends not to be so much about ethics or a philosophical understanding of justice, which is the kind of the, the angle my paper and podcast today is taking it from. Nevertheless, the Australian Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics um, talks about social justice in this kind of way. And this is a quote on page nine. Social justice is about social fairness. I like that. I like the con I like the concept of fairness. What is fair? Most of us can really connect with this notion of fairness. Uh, it's about upholding social fairness by acting to reduce barriers and to expand choice and potential for all persons with special regard for those who are disadvantaged, vulnerable, oppressed or have exceptional needs. This, the, the Code of Ethics does go on and, and give other explanations of that are compatible with that of social justice. What I do find really interesting and my work in the love, in the space of the love ethic model um, 
is very much about how we maybe don't, including in this code of ethics, say enough about how social justice work is obviously, yes, standing with and being advocates for and um, doing everything we can to support uh, people who are oppressed and experiencing injustice to feel heard and to participate in the resolution of those justice issues absolutely believe that that's what social work's about what's less recognized and implied by issues of justice is that we need to get really good at standing with disadvantaged groups as i was saying and at the same time holding a lens to and respectfully challenging and trying to engage in that challenging with powerful parties who have caused the injustice. I'm not sure that as a profession we do that as well as we do the standing with and advocating for disadvantaged groups. So I'll speak more about this another time, but that that gap is a little bit glaring for me when I'm reading out that definition from the Code of Ethics. It is interesting to note, uh, as we're speaking of that reference, that the Australian Code of Ethics um, does recognise the importance of the promotion of the protection, sorry, of the natural environment as inherent to social well-being. Um, so I find that very interesting that that's in a definition of social justice. Um, and what is interesting to me is. Um, how it virtually is absent in all other aspects of the Code of Ethics. And while I don't want this to be a critique of the Code of Ethics, I want to take the opportunity to say that when the environment is thought of in terms of how it benefits humans, then that is a, a bias, a human bias um, that has actually helped propagate some of the degradation and exploitation of the natural environment um, in terms of it being seen to be needed for the well-being of humans. So I, I just think it's really important that absolutely that there's a protection and commitment to protect the natural environment as part of being in the social work profession. And it does affect social well-being, uh, and yet we need to be willing ethically to recognise that right to protect the environment in its own right, irrespective of uh, the links with humans and even though the links are there. Okay, um, what the code of, and again in passing, uh, while I'm speaking of the code of ethics, um, it, it does stop short of recognising non-human animals. They're not mentioned in the code of ethics. So there are these, this to me is pointing to some of the limitations of the definition of social justice, which exclusively focuses on people's rights, people's well-being. Absolutely needs to be central, uh, but I'm saying it's not enough to only have that focus. All right, and just, just coming away from that social work reference a little bit to go more broadly, um, trying to unpack the meaning of justice and social justice. I like Iris Young's 1990 definition of justice. Um, she talks about the institutional arrangements that can create inequality and perpetuate bias and disadvantage in societies. Um, and a key part of what she talks about, so she's a sociologist, uh, is the importance of including people who are impacted by disadvantage and injustice in decisions which, which impact them. And I find that to be such a crucial and important principle and yet am surprised 
in my profession, how often um, and in my workplace, how often I see people not included in matters that affect them and someone else presuming to know what is best. Uh, this is this is such a, an obvious principle, but that it's often not adhered to is a matter of concern, I believe. Uh, Nancy Fraser, 2009, takes that idea of Young's a little bit further and says that the impacted parties in a justice issue need to be regarded as equal moral participants in addressing that issue. Now, I find that to be also really I've hardly ever witnessed people sitting as equals when there's often in an organisational setting, for example, such a hierarchy of power differences between, say, the manager of the service, the worker, the practitioner in the service and the client and the advocate for the client. It is very unusual to see a regard, an equal regard for all parties where the power accruing to authority and the roles are set to one side for the sake of generally hearing a person and working as equals to resolve the issue. It, it can happen. I have seen it happen, but it's actually quite unusual. So for me, matters of justice, drawing off Young and Nancy, and Nancy Fraser's ideas, um, uh, the inclusion of people in matters that affect them uh, without further exploiting them by treating them as equal moral participants, um, even if they have been party to the problem occurring, uh, not saying for one moment that they are the main people responsible for the problem, uh, but they have the wisdom of their experience that needs to be shared for the solutions to be relevant and meaningful to them. Okay. For me, the, both these authors um, leave out animals and the environment, uh, and we could factor them in. I would factor them in in my understanding of justice, and it really does raise challenges um, to think about how the environment can be regarded as an equal moral participant in matters of environmental degradation, for example, um, and how animals can be considered as equal moral participants. Um, and yet this is the challenge of this ethical positioning that I'm taking up. In, in thinking a little bit more about justice broadly as a concept and what this looks like on the ground in, 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 direct, in direct relationships, in complex challenges uh, where someone has, has, has a justice issue or is being held accountable for something that they think is unfair. Um, the notion, the ethico-legal principle of procedural justice or natural justice is interesting to me because the, the point of that ethico-legal principle is to curb the power of authority figures in a matter, in a decision-making matter, for example, in a workplace or in a court situation, um, is to make sure that those authority figures are being accountable by holding them to certain rules of conduct, such as acting with no bias, acting without discrimination, ensuring that they're acting on evidence and gives the person a right to have a say in the matter before them. Um, and I find that really an important way of thinking about justice. If the process is not fair, if the person's not included in the process and not listened to and able to influence the process in reasonable ways, um, then I think we have a real serious problem. 
Um, and certainly in government situations, it's really crucial that transparency and accountability of authority figures is is able to be called upon to ensure fair treatment of people. At the international level, of course, people would be aware of declarations such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which you know are, broadly speaking, premised in Western ideas of individual human rights being upheld um, for justice to be experienced. I think these are really important statements um, very significant. There are others as well, which I'll talk about at other times. Um, and the there can be though enormous slippages between these internationally um, important statements and what happens to an individual on the ground. And an example that comes to mind um, is uh, Australia's offshore detention of people seeking asylum in Australia was recognised by the United Nations as against the rights of refugee people to seek refuge, international right to seek refuge, and they sent to Australia several years ago at the peak of, of the political protest around offshore detention um, of refugees, so, sorry, asylum seekers. They sent special rapporteurs um, who tried to speak to the government about the injustice of what was happening, uh, and at this time there were there were quite a number of children in detention as well. And at the time, the the government of the day refused to accept the United Nations representations um, who were trying to be advocates on behalf of the people seeking asylum. So, so you can have these international declarations that are incredibly important. You can actually have laws of the land, which um, are meant to be anti-discriminatory of people and what we we can still see highly contentious political politicized situations um, where people's rights are not upheld and serious harm is done. Okay, people's rights are not assured. This is basically what I'm saying. Um, at the micro level of everyday interactions between people in the workplace, there can be unfair treatment of people. There can be unfair treatment of whole groups of people, for example, stigmatising of people who have a disability or people who have a mental health issue, um, demonising people who are seeking asylum in Australia. So there can be many ways that people's rights are not upheld, um, even when there is legislation, as I was saying. Um, one of the areas that I've been involved in in my practice over quite a period of years is the increasing evidence of ecological conflict across the planet where human rights conflict and and land rights conflict with industry rights to access land in the instances I've been involved in for mining. Um, and it's very concerning to me the turning of a blind eye internationally, I think, to the number of people who are killed every year across across a number of countries who are often First Nation people trying to protect their homelands from what is seen to be an invasion of multinational companies uh, for mining um, mining rights. Uh, and often this can split um, Indigenous groups amongst themselves as well uh, uh, and cause all sorts of 
fractures within their communities and ways of making decisions. So, so this the idea of the value of land to be seen to be a commodity in international mining operations and large-scale farming is what this concept of ecological conflict is getting at and the increasing pressure on the landscapes and even where people are trying to protect their landscapes and their environments that they can be overrun by multinational mining companies and local governments supporting those mining companies. So if you're interested in in these ideas, there are certainly a number of examples in Australia um, and the work that I've been doing with the Yaluk community around the Alcoa World Illumina impact on that community is is something you might like to check out. There's also some really incredible work, just to flag that right up front, um, with with uh, which has been written about, which is why I'm mentioning it, with a colleague of mine, a First Nation man, Michael Woodley, who is is part of the Indabandi people in northwest Western Australia, who for more than 10 years fought um, in legal and nonviolent ways with Fortescue Metals for rights to control and protect their lands from large-scale, enormous-scale um, iron ore mining by Fortescue Metals. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the book I'm thinking about um, that was written about the Yendabandi people's story is by Paul, Cle- Paul Cleary. Um, and I'm just checking the date. I've got the book sitting right here, and I don't know the date till I double check. Yes, 2021. I knew it was very new. And it's called T- Title Fight uh, How the Yendabandi Battled and Defeated a Mining Giant. Uh, really very interesting in terms of the land rights situation here in Australia reflected around the globe in terms of First Nation people's attempts to try and protect and have exclusive rights to their land, Um, even where there is legislation, like there is in Australia, to protect Indigenous people's rights, how that does not necessarily assure that. So when we're talking about justice, uh, it's very hard to actually only talk about people and justice because the land, their people's homelands, their environments, um, and the animals, other species who are part of people's communities and homelands, are all interconnected and inter-impacting and affecting of each other. So <clears throat> we're just unpacking this concept in the moment of social justice and merging it already to that broader ecological um, justice idea with some of those examples I was giving. So treating people fairly, being open and transparent and accountable when there are power differences between people and absolutely non-violence as an indicator of justice. Where there is lovelessness and violence, there is no justice. This is kind of the basic argument so far of the love ethic, the love ethic or the love theory that I'm developing. So coming to this notion of species justice, which is perhaps the least well recognised of the three types of justice, species justice um, is closely related to animal rights. And of course, there is very, very um, broad based animal rights and animal rights protection movement internationally. Inter- interesting to me, there are no international conventions protecting the rights and well-being of animals despite attempts for this to be established. So speciesism is how we describe the discrimination against other species, people 
people being a species, so species other than humans, um, speciesism is this bias against other animals. And it occurs due to human species superiority and power to control, use and kill some species of animals for human consumption. The use of other animals is made socially acceptable um, through the belief that they're not equal to humans and thus don't need to be afforded the rights and feelings of human beings. This has been challenged in a number of ways. Um, and for the moment, uh, I just want to mention this term, anthropocentric harm, which is talking about harm that occurs due to human superiority and bias against non-humans. So Eaglehawk uses this term and she argues that, and I'm going to quote her here from her 2020 um, chapter, killing animals for human consumption cannot be justified on moral grounds or on grounds of logic insofar as there is evidence that shows that humans do not need to eat meat, eggs or dairy to survive and thrive. So obviously her chapter goes into articulating um, how humans can survive very well without eating animal-based products. Um, and so her argument, which is very similar to mine, is that there, the moral, if we regard all beings as of equal intrinsic worth and right to exist peacefully, that there are no moral grounds for using animals, especially killing animals to eat. Um, and there are no logical grounds for it either because there are other options to animals to get the protein and other nutrients that we need. So species justice, especially for animals with a commercial value, such as farm, I'm talking here about farm animals, equates a loving recognition of equal intrinsic worth of all species and it also thereby equates with non with no violence. So this is about species justice. So it actually sees all living beings as of equal value. This is a, a moral and ethical positioning. And therefore, there should be no violence done towards all beings or animals. Um, the practice of no violence toward other animals is called veganism, and it's this refusal to use non-human animals for food, entertainment, research, clothing and sport. And for me, it's a moral baseline in how I attempt to live my values and my life. A commitment to veganism also involves, um, so I think that, you know, sorry, just let me just take one little step back. So veganism can be quite a provocative position to declare. It's getting a little easier in some situa social situations, um, but it's nearly always seen to be a strange thing when you, when people recognise that you're a vegan. Um, however, and it's often seen to be, it's about what you eat or what you don't eat for other that makes you a vegan. The next point is an interesting one and one that I think can really help find some common ground with people who may consume animal products. Um, and this is the point that veganism is also about working to dismantle uh, what Alga calls the animal industrial complex. It's, this is a highly sophisticated structure, economic structure, economic political structure um, between businesses, institutions and governments who, pr who promote 
or at least protect the use of non-human animals, for example, farming and the right to farm animals for profit and human consumption. Alga suggests that veganism, and I'm going to quote her here um, from her 2020 book, that veganism can be used as a tool to contribute to human liberation alongside animal liberation with potential benefits of social justice, public health and environmental sustainability. Now, this is quite a big claim. It kind of works better to read the detail of her arguments in her book. But what, what I, why I wanted to use this quote here is that I think she's saying that it matters. It matters how we treat other animals and that we can't have human liberation or animal liberation is, is absent for so many animals um, and that social justice is more likely when species justice is occurring as well. Um, and that public health and well-being will come with that because there are health issues with relating with eating meat for many people. Uh, there are obviously health issues for the animals being killed and the, the growing of animals uh, is recognised to be a major challenge on the planet, the clearing of farmlands and and the, the, the gases that they give off that affect to global warming that impact on global warming. So it's a complex point that Algar is making, but I really kind of like to think about and need to think some more about the intersection between human liberation, animal liberation, and protection of the environment. Of course, this is exactly what this umbrella concept of eco-justice is trying to get at. So just how this might be possible is the subject of her book, and, and I thought it might be one, one relevant example um, of the intersection or the inter-affecting nature of injustices between species um, is, is the over-representation of migrant workers who have typically come from um, a refugee background. Uh, <clears throat> there's an over-representation of them in Australian abattoirs where there are known severe mental health impacts on the workers and many have already experienced and are carrying trauma and discrimination from being refugees. Um, I find this very concerning. And if you read Eagle Hawk 2020 um, on the type of activism that can be undertaken to stand up for animals, um, she does some research in, into the influence of patriarchal society that makes some where there's some research that links um, violence by men in their homes with men who work in abattoirs. So this is some men. It's just a piece of research. It's not a general statement that can be made. Um, uh, the, so there's a link between the violence that workers, in this instance, men experience in their jobs as abattoir workers um, and the violence at home, both with their own animals and with their other family, mem with their family members. This is very concerning research um, and it's, it's just not on the agenda for debate in our society. So this interlink between um, the rights of workers to safe, non-violent work um, and animals not being slaughtered for human consumption and how the workers and the animals experience very negative impacts, obviously. 
So this idea of an animal industrial complex that leads to the use, the, the production and use of animals um, is, is a way of starting to unpack what's going on in society that makes it a norm and makes it okay and makes it unquestionable that people eat animals, that most people eat animals unless they've made a conscious, sometimes religious decision not to. I think this is an area we can all make a contribution to. My main focus here is on the ethical dimensions of the argument for species justice, where the mass-scale slaughter of non-human animals is evidence of lovelessness and violence by the dominant species, humans, toward other species. Hooks 2000 explains that change requires a conversion from an ethic of domination, uh, which is underpinned by violence, to an ethic of love. This is the kind of change we're looking for, for peace and well-being for all beings on the planet. There is a pressing need to develop an interspecies, between-species ethics, to see a different way for societies and individuals to respond. One interesting writer in this space is Cynthia Willett. Um, she was writing in 2014, and she identifies four types of ethics, which I find absolutely fascinating. don't pretend to understand them really well, but I keep thinking about them and get inspired by them. And she says that this, these ethics can help us begin to have a sense of how we can think differently um, and take on a different ethical position in our relationship with other species. So let me just give you a little sense of these four types of interspecies ethics and see what you think about them. Okay, I'm talking so much. <laughs> okay, um, so the first one is what she calls subject-less sociality. So, so that's bit being without a sense of self as a subject. This is where we suspend our individual sense of self to merge our awareness with other animals, sharing a similar space or experience as occurs during a flood or a bushfire disaster, so that we become less concerned that we're a human being and we have to save ourselves um, except uh, at any cost. And we have seen many examples in Australia where we've had some really devastating floods and bushfires in recent years of people going out of their way, placing their own lives on the line to save and protect animals. Um, it just and not to mention other people, of course, but in this instance, to save and protect other animals and to do so as one being toward another. This idea of subjectless sociality that and that happened with people who had direct relationships, for example, with farm animals, but also other people who came from surrounding areas who didn't have direct relationship with animals. There were people who went into the really badly burnt forests to try and find and, and, and help animals that were in trouble. For example, koalas had fallen out of trees and their paws and feet were getting had become really burnt and were in serious trouble. Some city people went out into the forest to help save the animals. Incredible, a really beautiful example of foregoing our individual sense of self as being more important than anything else and becoming an equal with the animals that, that are being engaged with in these kind of situations. It's very closely related to Willett's second idea of 
an ethic that can help us connect with as equals with other animals. And it's this idea of intersubjective attunement. So intersubject is between subjects, between humans and animals, and attunement tuning into, which refers to adjusting our behavior to be in step with other animals to meet their needs or to gain their cooperation, not for the purpose of exploiting and harming them, I should add, but to understand and care for. And I think many of us really know what this means and do this with animals who we already have a relationship with, including farm animals. Um, And I I want to acknowledge here that people who are farmers are really important in our society and I know they love and care for their animals. Um, I don't wish to stand in judgment. Um, So the third type of interspecies ethics is quite wordy. Let me read it to you and see what you think and then I'll see if I can unpack what it means <clears throat> this is how Willett describes it um, as affect clouds of biosocial networks which are not properties or states interior to bound subjects or non-porous bodies now if you bear with me <laughs> I think it's saying that no matter who we are um, uh, it's not about um who we are per se it's about the networks of connectivity we have with other entities other sentient beings Um, and so i take this to mean fostering relationships with other animals in a shared environment where for example animals are known to come to the aid of humans in trouble this can be wild animals in fact you know, so this is really pretty remarkable. And another example would be when humans and other animals enjoy each other's company and play together um, um, and enjoy each other's company in a way that's so obvious uh, and delightful. So this is this kind of affect clouds of biosocial networks, this kind of shared energy, this shared feeling of recognition of our equal moral worth finally for willett the third sorry the fourth type of ethic that she says can build bridges between species is a willingness to recognize and make room for the implications of the idea of animals being spiritual beings and having sense making and agency in the world We know our pets have feelings and research has shown this to be true in so many other relationships with uh, with non-human animals. Um, And I just think we sometimes try to avoid thinking about cows and sheep and pigs and ducks and chooks and fish having feelings because if we really feel that deeply, we could not stand by and let so many of them be killed every day for human use so these concepts of willets may be hard to hold in your head so thinking you know what what would it be what what is it something that we're all able to do that would help start to build that bridge more substantially between human beings and non-human beings and i know some of us are already highly skilled at this and highly dedicated in this area so in a nutshell i think practicing empathy for other species and regarding them as equal moral worth are two ways to challenge speciesism which is a much broader systemic cultural 
pattern of bias and to avoid being complicit in the industrialised mass violence against some human, some non-human animals. So we know that empathy is that ability to feel with, feel for, recognise and seek to understand the other party. We all have pets whom we love and would do anything to care for them. Affording other animals this same love offers hope that change toward love is possible. Okay, so that was species justice. We've also looked at social justice and the third type of justice that that sits under the umbrella of ecological justice is environmental justice and acknowledging all the people who are already active in the environmental movement in all the forms that it takes. Um, Environmental justice can be best understood, I think, in terms of the presence of uh, the various types of sustainability. So sustainability is about a balance of the life cycles of a situation and of or a relationship of non-exploitation um, and nurturing and caring for, like a stewardship for the land and the ecosystems. So for me, when I think about environmental justice, I think of it as terms quite quite interesting as environmental sustainability that's quite obvious and absolutely crucial but also social sustainability um, and also economic sustainability are interlinked and not separate from uh, environmental sustainability concerns so just to explain those concepts briefly so we got hold of them um, as a central way of understanding environmental justice social sustainability to me exists when there's equality between people and also between people and non-human animals so when i use the concept social i do often think of it as across species not only only for people typically in the literature though social sustainability is about relationships between people and it's also not only between uh, equality between people here and now but intergenerational going forward equality and sustainability of relationships and cultures and societies the the second type of sustainability is economic sustainability which i have to stop myself from rushing to say this, but it is so obvious that we do not have economic sustainability in societies like Australia, which are colonialist and capitalist. Um, They do not function on the basis of sustainability and equilibrium and equality, quite the opposite. Um, Economic sustainability shows as non-violence and non-exploitation between business owners, governments and wealthy citizens and with other people and non-human animals. So it's about non-exploitation, non-violence um, in economic activities. Um, and the, the environmental sustainability is about mutual respect, love and justice between people, non-human animals and the natural world. And obviously when there's exploitation and degradation, the mass loss of biodiversity, for example, um, we're we're really seriously looking at issues of sustainability in the environment. The key point is that justice requires these intersecting forms of sustainability, the social, the environmental and the economic. And in turn, that sustainability issues, as evident in wicked problems and all types of violence, need to be addressed for justice to be realised. 
So when there is unsustainability happening, when there are minority groups in society, including some species groups, being exploited and harmed, um, uh, then then we we don't have sustainability uh, in social relationships, but it also flows and affects economic relations and our relationship with the environment. It follows that social justice cannot be achieved then without environmental and species justice, which is why I like that umbrella term that holds them all together in our mind. I agree with Wyatt, who argues that it is a state crime if governments do not act to protect the environment from exploitation by private interests. Not many people would see it like that, but I really find that a very powerful way of talking about how important it is to protect our environment for our own lives and for the lives of all other beings. In Australia, most states have environmental protection legislation, which is a good thing in theory, and it contains an environmental, it typically contains an environment, what's called an environmental precautionary principle. And this principle says that the government or relevant department of the government um, should, when there's an application, say, for some type of development, should do all the necessary risk assessment. Um, and if it looks like there is irretrievable harm to the landscape or to um, species dependent on the landscape, that that is enough cause to not proceed, to not approve that development application. Um, <coughs> it's kind of better to err on the side of caution than to rush ahead with development and cause irreparable harm is that principle. A recent example um, which gives hope, I believe, is where there were restrictions placed on the development approval of a wind turbine um, farm in northern Tasmania. Um, and so while while the development was approved, there was a major restriction placed on it, and the whole point was to protect the migrating orange-bellied parrot uh, whose flight path is where the, the wind turbines were going to go and and in for up to five months of the year, the, the endangered or close to endangered orange-bellied parrot would be flying where the, the wind turbines would be operating. And, and anyone who's done any research around the impact of wind turbines will know that it's really quite disastrous for many bird life, for much of the bird life in the area. So it's really interesting to see that that's happened. Uh, there's an article in the written version of the podcast by Frank um, that's that is titled Planned Wind Farm Told It Will Need to Shut Down for Five Months a Year to Protect Parrots. This has just come out last week um, in a local um, press release and it's very interesting to see the reaction from business sector saying how outrageous this is and how how this almost, and it possibly is true, that it makes their business um, balance sheet not look very viable. So it, it's a complex argument about whose interests get upheld at whose cost. Uh, but I think I think we need to be willing to make these kind of decisions to, if we really care about the very concerning extinction rate of very precious wildlife. It should matter to us, even if we've never met an orange-bellied parrot. Okay. Um, 
In societies where there's widespread social sustainability, that is where there's widespread social equality between people, this will be expressed as relationships where there is love, nonviolence and justice. The fostering of all types of sustainability is at the heart of First Nations' idea of stewardship. And Polina writes that, and this is a quote of hers, country is alive, vibrant and all-encompassing and thus is an active participant in the world and fully connected in a vast web of dynamic interdependent relationships. These relationships are strong and resilient when they are maintained. I really like that definition or that that description, and to me that's at the heart of not only environmental justice but also this overarching idea of ecological justice, which is very consistent with First Nation philosophies of the interconnectivity of all things. So the adoption of a more expansive idea of justice as as this eco or ecological justice idea is is not an idle academic exercise rather i think it's a critical task and it requires us to develop what what thomas shaw calls an ecological imagination um <clears throat> and we many of us um would be aware of the concept of sociological imagination where we understand how individual individual problems can be um, expressed as or can be understood as social patterns and issues. This, of course, is Sue Wright Mill's 1959's idea, um, and it helps us see the broader patterns that could be uh, a way of understanding what's happening to an individual. So Thomas Shaw's idea of ecological imaginations fits comfortably alongside a sociological imagination and asks us to look at all the interconnected aspects of life and diversity and livingness um, of beings on the planet and to to try and imagine to try and imagine how it could look better for us so this idea of ecological imagination is what i think we need to cultivate i'm hoping this concept of um, ecological justice helps us hold that multi-dimensional view and sense of who matters um and Thomas Shaw explains that an ecological imagination is where we can imagine new ways of being understand the interconnections between all elements of life and engage with others to co-create new possibilities. That's not exactly his wording, but it's my interpretation of what he was saying. And when I say that we engage, we need to engage with others to co-create new possibilities, I'm also thinking engaging with other species and Mother Nature herself in co-creating new possibilities. So wicked problems are interconnected issues, including things, very concerning things such as poverty and famine, often impacting whole sections of countries, climate change, mining industry pollution, loss of biodiversity and deforestation. Holly Higgins, 2010, coins the term ecocide. Now, this is a pretty full-on concept, if you just bear with me, um, and she breaks the word, the word ecocide down. She says that eco means oikos, O-I-K-O-S, or dwelling place in Greek, and then side in French means killer. And so, she's, so ecocide is killing of our dwelling place. And she argues that we need to eradicate ecocide 
by forcibly removing the systems that are killing and destroying our habitat, our dwelling place. Now, by forcibly removing the systems, she doesn't mean to use force. She doesn't mean to use violence. She actually says to use national, international, legal and other governance interventions. She explains, and this is a part of what she, her direct quote, without the well-being of the ecology of our planet, our, our well-being suffers. So it's a very powerful book, and it's really worth a read for how she thinks that we can begin to address this issue of the killing of our planet, the unsustainability of so much of what is happening on the planet. Higgins' view, of course, is consistent with First Nations ideas, whereas Ampelina writes, for first Australians, land, water, people and the environment are intrinsically entwined. That's a quote from Ampelina. First Australians, land, water, people and the environment are intrinsically entwined. Polina goes on to describe how in her language, she's a woman who belongs to the Maduarara, which is uh, in English language is the Fitzroy River, such that customary law determines that in regard to my relationship to the river, the Maduarara, it owns me. I am duty bound to protect the river's right to life because it is the river of life. It's a very beautiful, very ecological um, wisdom and this is this is part of how Polina understands her responsibilities as a steward of the country where she lives. That she's not separate from and is equal to in terms of moral intrinsic worth to the river, the Maduara. Thus, for a love theory to guide responses to oppression and violence, we can't hold to a human-centric stance on who who matters. This brings me to my key ethical premise, which is that all beings and entities that comprise life on the planet are of equal intrinsic worth. This next sentence is hard. It was hard to write and it's hard to say, but I really think from a purest ethical position, it is true for me. The life of a tree is as important as my life and as important as the wild horse's life. To make this statement is one thing, to believe it is another, and to act on this belief is very difficult. It's not a position that is self-evident or agreed widely in Western societies, because Western societies such as Australia are premised on the superiority of humans, and in colonial patriarchy, Colonialist patriarchal societies are premised on the superiority of white men, and in capitalist societies, it is not self-evident that nature has a right to exist without being considered only in terms of its value to humans. So there's a lot stacked against the widespread acceptance of the equal intrinsic worth of all people, of all species, and of Mother Nature in all her diversity. This equal intrinsic worth premise places quite some moral pressure on us as humans to regard and treat non-human animals as having rights to live peacefully and have their needs met. It also challenges to regard and treat non-human entities and other sentient beings as having rights to coexist without being exploited and harmed. This is by no means a well-accepted moral position. Just to summarise now, after that fairly full-on <laughs> um, session on such a big topic, 
So in summary, I'd say that love is multifaceted, multifocused, and it embraces the in- because it and it needs to be because it embraces the intersectionality of all aspects of life on the planet, and is needed to be this kind of sophisticated notion of love for justice to matter for everyone and everything. Without this expansive commitment to love of others and other places, untold tyrannies and unchecked exploitation would be rife. Tyrannies and exploitation are occurring, deeply concerning, but would be far worse, I believe, without the millions of loving people working to enable justice, peace and the survival needs and other rights of people, animals and landscapes. Eco-justice was explored as a way of fostering this multidimensional and multi-focused commitment to love. Eco-justice links social, species and environmental justice in recognition of the interconnectedness of violence, oppression and exploitation. This idea requires an ethical position that upholds the equal intrinsic worth of all beings and entities that comprise nature and the totality of life on the planet. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time and interest and would be really pleased to hear from you. And if you have any good references or want me to include some ideas that I haven't talked about yet, please let me know. Thank you. Bye now.